Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. More and more countries around the world are setting legal targets to eliminate carbon emissions by mid-century. Sweden and Germany have targeted 2045 and a host of European countries including France, Spain, Hungary, UK and also countries as far afield as Japan and Canada and New Zealand have set 2050 as their goal. But as well as 2050 targets, the UK has an interim target which it recently set of cutting emissions by 78% by 2035. The US, for its part, has a patchwork of state targets and industrial pledges including tech companies seeking to eliminate emissions in their value chain, i.e. Google has promised to do this by 2030. But what all these target setters haven't got is an agreed method of reaching these goals. Most people agree we're going to need a lot more electricity if we are to eliminate the emissions from fossil fuels. And in the UK, the assumption is broadly two times as much as we currently generate. Where's it all going to come from? The two most frequently discussed options are renewable energy, mainly wind, solar and hydro, and nuclear power. Now, renewables currently account for around a third of UK generation, the rest coming from nukes and imports. And some think this proportion should rise substantially as we decarbonise, up to more than 75%, according to the UK's Committee on Climate Change. Now, some countries do already generate lots of electricity from renewables, countries like Iceland, Albania and Costa Rica. But most large advanced economies don't have the winning combination of abundant natural resources and small populations. So we thought now would be a good moment to discuss how we should think about these aspirations. How economically sensible is it to rely on generation from sources that are naturally variable? And are there limits to renewable generation beyond which it becomes unviable? And lastly, is there a practical and cost-effective way of dealing with intermittency? And we're very pleased to be joined by Doomberg, which has established itself as the most widely read finance newsletter on Substack. It's an anonymous organisation, so the anonymous team behind Doomberg have built their careers in heavy industry and private equity, running large R&D and finance teams. Are you sort of antidote to Bloomberg? (laughs) First of all, Jonathan, Neil, great to be here. And Neil, to your question, the original brand concept for Doomberg, when we had no idea that it would become anything of relevance, was Chicken Little Gets a Terminal. And uh, doom scrolling was a hobby of mine in particular. And so um, almost as a joke, Doomberg was born. And the green chicken itself comes from uh, that initial concept of Chicken Little furiously pecking away at a Bloomberg terminal looking for things to be worried about. Well, listeners can't see, but we're looking at a screen with a a green chicken sitting in a chair, apparently (laughs) somewhere in the Midwest of America. Every now and then it blinks, but its its beak doesn't move. No, (laughs) it's... uh... (laughs) We want it to be just lifelike enough to be... uh... It actually becomes quite normal after a while, I suspect. So I thought we should kick off. We've obviously, we, we started off by me banging on for a bit about how much renewable generation the UK has and how much it hopes to have, or the organisation which oversees the sort of decarbonisation strategy for the UK hopes we'll have. But are there sort of limits to renewable generation beyond which it's unwise to go? The topic of renewable energy is a complex one. I would estimate that we've published probably more than 100 pieces on it in various 
forms. And the most uh, interesting aspect of your introduction was your thoughtful consideration around trade-offs, which is surprisingly absent from <laughs> much of the policy debate and discussions around wow. renewable energy. Without a, a true science-based and economics-based assessment of the trade-offs of the varying options that we have before us, it is inevitable that uh, policy blunders necessarily follow. To your specific question, there is a huge challenge relying on weather-dependent sources of energy like wind and solar, which of course, as you mentioned, is the vexing challenge of intermittency. And for those that are listening that may not be familiar with what that term means or how difficult a challenge it presents, the magic wonder of a, of a developed world's electricity grid is that it's always on. It always perfectly matches demand with supply, which is a choreographed dance of extraordinarily high complexity that is performed day in and day out by grid operators. As it turns out, you lose a significant amount of the economic benefit of a stable grid with only several minor percentage points of brownouts or blackouts. Once you begin to have an unstable grid, you very quickly deindustrialize as manufacturers can't run their facilities without some semblance of certainty. And so the challenge becomes, of course, the sun doesn't shine at night, which is very predictable, and then it doesn't shine during significant periods of the winter, but also the wind is, is very, very intermittent as well. And so you can go from a period where wind and solar are pouring too much electricity into the grid and therefore spot electricity prices go negative to they're putting almost no electricity into the grid and various forms of backup power that are expensive and dirty need to be kicked on in order to maintain a semblance of order in the operation of your grid. And so unless and until a substantial breakthrough in some form of storage technology is achieved, no matter how much incremental wind and solar you put onto a grid, uh, you cannot base the core of one of the most important economic assets a country has on weather-dependent intermittent renewables. Well, so you, what you yeah. say to me seems to be so screamingly obvious that I'm appalled that and puzzled as to how we have been duped into failing to believe it. You know, it is so obvious that you've got to have at very least backup of a stable production of electricity and all this costs money. Why do you think it is that we've bought this myth? The question is often asked, is this grift or is it incompetence? Our answer to that is yes. Uh, it's, a it's a combination <laughs> of both. Okay. Uh, there's no question that there is an awful lot of ignorance on the subject matter of energy, especially in policymaking circles. But just to go back to the original point, is your view then, Mr. Doomberg, that... Essentially, we shouldn't build any new renewables. We shouldn't be spending any money on it. Do they serve any positive purpose on the grid? It seemed to me from what you said, broadly, adding a single wind turbine is a net negative and it makes your grid more unstable. I would partition between wind and solar. Mm -hmm. I think wind is uniquely dumb. Okay. And I think the wind sector is heading for a very dark period. In fact, we predicted the imminent demise of the wind industry. Wind makes so little sense oh. and the industry has done such a poor job Every installed wind turbine, either onshore or offshore, is a uh, stationary piece of future liability forever for whoever put it there. We'll come back to this because yes. this is your absolutely music to Neil's ears. Yes. He's, um, his ears are waggling in pleasure inside yeah. his headphones. Yeah. Go on. Such a relief to find somebody else saying it. <laughs> oh, anyway. oh, dear. In a separate bucket with yeah. more plausible application would be solar. Now, I would say 
solar makes uniquely little sense in Western Europe, just given the, the incidence of, the, of energy that the sun blesses or curses the region with, depending on your viewpoint. Mm. But there are parts of the world where solar intensity is high and uh, solar can make significant sense in limited applications. But as a catch-all solution for carbon-free, quote-unquote, electricity, there's also some substantial drawbacks to solar which need to be addressed. Uh, we kind of grew up in the solar industry and have some pretty specific knowledge of how we got to where we are, which is, of course, China monopolizing all key elements of the supply chain. Mm. That's an entirely different rabbit hole we can go down. But I would partition solar separate from wind, and we are far, far more bearish on wind than, and than even solar. It's certainly been a bugbear of Niels. We occasionally have people who come on who make the point, oh, well, the wind energy, the cost is declining dramatically, and Neil virtually explodes. But what is the real position in what is the real position in your view? Let me give you some red meat, Neil, in lieu of the white meat chicken sitting in front of you. <laughs> the main measurement tool used by propagandists in support of the wind sector is what's known as levelized cost of electricity. And that term is a fraud. So people who are pushing levelized cost of electricity as anything meaningful are either victims of propaganda or knowing purveyors of it. And the reason why uh, levelized cost of electricity is such a fraud is because it fails to account for any of the costs or penalties that are imposed on a grid that must be absorbed by somebody somewhere when intermittency, to the extent that wind is extraordinarily intermittent, those costs are extremely high. And they are, instead of being assigned to the category of the energy source that uh, brought that intermittency to the party, it gets spread over the rest of the uh, sources of energy to make them look artificially bad. And that's just the end of the story. At its core, wind is a very low energy dense source of power. You have to capture energy from vast areas and concentrate it, as opposed to starting with an extremely concentrated form of energy like uranium, and then allowing engineers to sort of downselect to the exact amount that we need. It's a lot easier to slide down that hill than it is to climb one. And in particular, the cost of wind scale with the price of fossil fuels because the blades are made of epoxy and carbon fiber and the stems are made from you know various heavy construction materials on top of all of that in the zeal for ever increasing quote efficiency the industry has tried to build ever longer blades which increases the balance of system stress on everything else involved to the point where things are breaking now and on top of that the industry is so heterogeneous that they have not settled on standardized lengths and tools and and components such that they have not experienced any of the costs learning curve that come with expanding to a global scale, a, a sort of a small set of standardized operations. And so we are seeing now wind turbines failing in the field at much higher rates. Here's, here's the bottom line. If wind were the cheapest form of energy, we wouldn't need to subsidize it to the extent that we do. And somebody somewhere would be making money in the industry. Find me who's making money in the wind sector today. When you, say, when you say that they're not making money, are you talking about the manufacturers or are you talking about the utilities which are taking the subsidy and generating the wind power from wherever? So across the value chain, from manufacturers to famously in the UK, a developer walked away from a project because of the contracted agreement was, was uneconomic for the, the price that they were going to receive for the power that they produced. Mm. The major players in the field are hemorrhaging cash. Might there be a company or two or a a node in the supply chain that is shrewdly taking advantage of the public treasury and, and making money, perhaps? Oh, there's undoubtedly, there are one or two because yeah. they walked away from their contract and sold it on the spot market during last winter when the price went up. Sure. 
And there's all kinds of bad players in all forms of the energy market, like a famous story here in the US, an owner of one of our LNG export facilities who is refusing to honor their long-term contracts by pretending like the plant isn't finished construction yet, even though they've sold something like 120 cargoes onto the spot market. So these kinds of shenanigans aren't unique to the renewable energy sector, just to be clear. But by and large, uh, for the reasons that I articulated, we are deeply, deeply bearish to the wind sector. So if we can agree that windmills are not the future, solar might have some part to play. Nuclear is a wonderful idea, but it somehow seems to take 20 years to build a single station in the UK. Do you have anything positive to say about the increasing proportion of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, or shouldn't we worry about it? Is the whole green machine completely mistaken? So two questions embedded in there, um, or at least two things I'd like to address. The first is your comment about how long it takes to build nuclear power. That is a pure political choice. You know, if France could build out uh, its nuclear fleet in the 70s, 60s and 70s, if Canada could build a gigawatt of nuclear capacity every year for 20 years, 50 years ago, surely we can do it today. Environmentalists have spent an enormous amount of time and money obstructing the development of nuclear power in every way possible. And then they turn around and say, uh, we can't do nuclear because it takes too long and it's too expensive. And they're the root cause of both of those issues. To your specific question, we would fade climate alarmism. We would go long human ingenuity to respond to consequences of changes in the climate. We've not really indulged in the debate around whether CO2 is truly a pollutant and whether we are killing the planet by filling the atmosphere with it. We kind of view that as, as an axiom for consideration. And if you take that as an axiom, if you cede that ground to the environmentalists, you still end up with nuclear power anyway. And so that is sort of our foundational view on the matter. On the assumption that that is the whatever axiom you start with, is we are going down this route for political choices and... Uh... Do you think there is a viable route to decarbonize in the sort of time scale that certainly European countries seem to be going for? The United States is a bit less clear where they'll end up at a federal level. But is it practical? And if so, how do you achieve it? Other than do you just build heaps of nuclear or do you, are there other ways in which you deal with the not just obviously electricity generation, but the other industrial issues that raise their... Let him answer the question. <laughs> raise their ugly the heads. God. <laughs> At least I asked them rather than you just making your <laughs> angry statements. Um, there is very little that couldn't be done with nuclear. So you have today between nuclear and, and of course, um, the SMR variants of nuclear technology, virtually everything you would need There's also um, significant progress that we just wrote about in carbon capture and sequestration. We think it's kind of a silly idea, but if you force the industry to do it, um, they could could figure it out, uh, as we wrote in the piece. I mean, contrary to what people think, the the commodity sector is filled with tens of thousands of the smartest, hardest working people in the world. And every day they do the hard work that makes our life easy and our disdain for them is is somewhat peculiar, given the critical role they play in, in establishing our standard of living. So absent a radical decrease in our standard of living, which we argue is the true core of, of the environmental movement, it has an ugly Malthusian past, absent a radical decrease in our standard of living, there's no way to decarbonize without the core of your strategy being nuclear power. Just to come back to renewables, although it's always very agreeable to talk about nuclear power, do you think that there are any other technologies, I and mean, I'm thinking here about storage, which is ultimately the as you've said, the only way it really functions at all is with some 
form of storage to back it up. Do you think there are any developments in storage technology which look at all promising? Because I have to say, I've looked a bit at it and I find myself scratching my head about driving railway trains up hills and dropping blocks of concrete from towers and the like as being a, a, a sensible way of doing anything. Storage already works on a grand scale. It's, it's called hydroelectricity. And one country that is amongst the greenest in the world that you failed to mention in your introduction, of course, is Norway. Yeah. Yeah. And Norway has dammed just about every body of water that it can. And yeah. it actually has behind its dams something like the equivalent of 70% of its annual electricity use as a giant uh, water battery, uh, to sort of think of it in, in, in sort of broad terms. Problem with hydroelectricity is uh, environmentalists oppose, obviously, for a variety of reasons, uh, the construction of new dams. And so that's not a source of incremental viable solutions for storage going forward. Now, also, you can create um, artificial water storage, but by and large, my answer to you is no. If you look at the entirety of the U.S. installed battery backup in the grid, I think it can power the grid for a, a period that is measured in minutes today as backup. And it's just the amount of battery materials that you would need to back up a reasonable amount of the grid's capacity for any semblance of time uh, is so vast. And by the way, these same organizations that are proposing that we should deal with intermittency by uh, installing all these batteries are the same ones opposing the development of any mines that would allow for the getting of these materials in the first place. And so we have these circular arguments of forcing impossible answers onto the grid. And, and then, then you see the consequences of it. Can I just ask you one question, which is a question which baffles me. If you look at the UK historically, a fifth or in the US as well, a fifth of energy use has been electricity. People basically talk about a mass electrification of our economies. But certainly in the UK, the assumption about generating capacity for electricity is it will double. Now, that seems to me to imply that we're going to have to use a lot less energy in future. Or am I just missing some that is, simple and obvious point? That is the design criteria that is unspoken. The ideal outcome is less people on the planet, actually. Um, they don't say that in polite circles anymore, but that is the actual objective. Well, these people, of course, could do something about it. Well, as we like to say, you first yeah, to such quite. people, um, which usually doesn't go <laughs> doesn't over very well. Terribly well. But, um, <laughs> but it is, it, there is, uh, and to your point, I mean, if 20% of our energy is electricity and our objective is to electrify everything, the US hasn't grown its electricity capacity in any meaningful way in 40 years. Neither is the UK. In fact, ours has been shrinking. Yeah. And so this is, again, platitudes, mostly. And of course, just take diesel. Diesel fuels every transportation of goods in the world. Trucks, ships, you name it. And this is considered, quote, hard to abate. There is no way to electrify delivery trucks in any meaningful way without swamping the world and shorting the world of, of the battery materials that would go in them. Uh, and it's not even practical in any sense of the term. And so, but we have to suffer a lot of pain before people realize that we're pursuing such bad policies. Yeah, it's not just transportation, of course. Uh, the thing that's often overlooked is food, which is a huge consumer of hydrocarbons in terms of fertilizer and crop control and harvesting and transportation. This is a, something that's just hardly even been talked about in the UK, let alone being addressed. So again, let's, let's talk about how nuclear could solve almost all of these problems. You could make hydrogen from nuclear with an electrolyzer and then use the Haber process to make fertilizer without any natural gas, and therefore it would be carbon-free. You could turn over to the civilian world the nuclear technology that powers submarines 
And you can imagine nuclearizing a global shipping fleet. Real challenge, of course, would be trucks and diesel. There's no real easy answer to that. But you know, by and large, you would be cutting substantial emissions by tackling those problems. There is really very little that nuclear couldn't do, which is why it's so violently opposed. <laughs> Hang on. I'm not quite sure I get that connection. To the Malthusians, the last thing they wanted to do was to unleash cheap carbon-free energy onto the population, because then in their view, that would trigger a resource drain that the earth couldn't support across other dimensions, land and, and so on, and, and the other problems that in their mind that come with growing standards of living. And, and you have to remember you know, that we have 5 billion people on the planet, roughly, for whom the base of Maslow's pyramid is currently unmet. And these people use precious little energy per capita and would love to use a lot more. And, and they swamp us uh, in future CO2 emissions. And so in the eyes of the Malthusians, nuclear energy was opposed precisely because it provides abundant energy to the masses. Uh, this was their horror. This is exactly why they have concocted all of these fake propaganda campaigns against the industry. But it's it's certainly true that some environmentalists have kind of, you know, I'm thinking of people like Mark Linus in the UK, who started out being very much in favour of the sort of things that the Sierra Club were advocating. I don't know who you're referring to when you talk about Malthusians. Some people have made the kind of leap of sort of seeing the consequences of some of these policies but it, I suppose, yeah, it does seem to be very difficult to move the needle. The best way to counter Malthusians is to call them on it and to walk them, walk listeners through the logic. We will debate anybody who has authentically held beliefs that are politely expressed and have done so. We've debated several high-profile environmentalists and, and have more than held our own. Um, <laughs> and I, I would say, like all politics, I think open, honest discussion where people try to debate facts is how we move forward. Mm. Uh, I would say the nuclear renaissance that is occurring around the world, Canada, Japan, the United Arab Emirates just turned on its third of four large reactors and it has plans for two more. It, it can be done. If it's hopeless and you can't engage in, in politics through civilized debate and writing and discourse and discussions like this, then of course things would become very dark very quickly and would have nothing to do with energy it would be how broken our politics are. And so, yeah, I do think People everywhere, one of our fundamental axioms is, uh, is all people everywhere want a higher standard of living. And on the path from abundance to starvation is riot. <laughs> and people won't put up with substantial decreases to their standard of living. I suspect the UK is going to see a, a period of uh, a societal disruption in the next half a dozen years or so as the consequences of the energy follies uh, of yesteryear become apparent. And the only way out of such civil disturbances is to have a viable answer or set of policies that people can rally around. And, and you miss 100% of the shots you never take, as Wayne Gretzky famously says. I just hope you're right in terms of people understanding the absurdities of the environmental extremists before the pain gets worse than it has been, because we're not seeing any increase in, uh, in our standard of living in the UK. Let me give you a, a, an example of what I'm talking about. Joe Biden of course, is in his political camp is all of these environmental groups. What happened last year as soon as oil breached $100 a barrel and gasoline in the U.S. crossed the politically pivotal $5 a gallon? Biden panicked, emptied the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to the tune of a million barrels a day, called on the oil and gas sector to produce more energy, outraged his environmental supporters, and this was all at $5 a gallon gasoline. Imagine the political response if we got to 10 or 15 in the U.S. It, it, this is, this, of course people will flip because it's unpopular. And watch the German political situation closely for an early taste of what's coming. You know, oh. this, this rise of the quote-unquote far-right party AFD 
and the uh, establishment's response to it is, is truly fascinating as an outsider. We do believe that the path function matters, that you might not like the reaction, might not like the populist uh, movements that arise from decreasing standards of living. We've seen what happens historically. It's not a pretty picture. Let's try to get ahead of it. Let's try to prevent it with sane policies. I mean, that sounds so sensible to me that I can't understand why the politicians are... No, we're going to get trapped in a doom loop here of you saying you can't understand why the politicians... You're going to get your Doomberg loop. The the best part of all, it's just incredibly great for our business because there's no shortage of things to write about. (laughs) That's true enough. There we are, an upbeat note on which to end. (laughs) (laughs) That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.